No, I didn't actually attempt. Um, I haven't gotten to that point, I guess. The courage, the strength that it takes to be open and honest about this. Instead of just, you know, blaming myself that he's not here anymore. Uh, I was prepared to shoot myself. And I called my family uh, to sort of say goodbye. To be honest, I was scared reaching out for help because I was like, this could totally ruin my career. Somebody to have a more proactive approach and that he was coming to me to be that person. They found him and he committed suicide. I just started screaming. I just felt responsible. Hello, everybody. I am Tim Lawson, host of the One Too Many Veteran Suicide Project slash podcast. I thank you for listening. This is episode three. We're a few episodes into this, and anybody who's listened to the first two episodes know that we are starting off strong with some powerful stories. Episode one featuring myself uh, having a conversation with John Lee Dumas about my own personal struggle with suicide. You can hear that episode at one too many project.com slash episode one. And then episode two features Zachary Bell, a Marine veteran who's involved with the organization Courage Beyond. He talks to us about losing his friend to suicide and how he coped with it and how it motivated him to want to help veterans deal with their emotional and mental stress and issues. Zach is very well spoken. It's very honest. It's passionate. It's definitely a must listen. O-N-E, the number two, manyproject.com slash episode two is where you can hear Zach's interview. Very powerful. I highly suggest you go listen to it. If you're new to the, if you're new to this podcast, I, I definitely ask that you, uh, you know, you, you respect my guests. Um, you know, all of my guests so far have have come forward to, uh, you know, have asked not to be anonymous, uh, which is very, I think, is very powerful because you know it's helping make that connection just a little bit further. You know, being able to identify you know, with someone just a little bit more by knowing who they are, their name, it's very wonderful. But, you know, in the weeks to come, if one of my guests decides to be anonymous, I just respect that you uh, respect that of them. Do not call them out and, um, you know, do not question anything that they're really sharing because, you know, it takes a lot to step forward and share these these stories with us. The project would not be possible without all the support that I've been getting through the Kickstarter, the sponsors, all the friends. Um, this week, uh, my quote unquote sponsor, the person I want to highlight for its help, uh, two guys, Aaron Provost and Sean Reardon, they both helped me with the development of the graphics, the images, the logos and everything for the project. It's very cool when people come forward and they're like, yes, I want to help with this. I want to, you know, I want to donate what I, my skills to this project, to this cause. Uh, you know, Sean did a great job with the logo. It looks amazing. Uh, Aaron has helped me with developing some of the graphics you may see on the Facebook and Twitter feeds. I want to give them both a huge thanks. And if you go to, if you go to our website and click on sponsors, you'll see more information about these two guys. You can go to their websites and, you know, maybe they can get involved with what you have going on and they can help you brand and boost what your project, the way they have mine. So big thank you to those two guys. This episode is very different uh, in conversation from what the first two episodes were. Um, this, this is two Marines 
having a Marine conversation. Uh, Mark Wade, a USMC sergeant, has come forward and want, you know is telling us a story about how he found a friend of his dead in his barracks room um, after a uh, after a, a gun inflicted wound to the head, and it's it's blunt. It's straightforward. It's a discussion that you would expect two Marines to be having uh, with still respect to the dead. I hope that it doesn't make you uncomfortable with how casually we're talking about this. But I think the the reason why I wanted to feature this conversation early is I want people to understand that while this is a dark subject and while this is an uncomfortable conversation to have... These are conversations we're capable of having and making it more casual and making it more blunt is, I think, actually makes it easier to have because it starts becoming like other conversations and maybe it's a little bit easier to get through without having this sense of darkness inside of you after you're done. I know a lot of people, I'm getting a lot of great feedback on my last episode with Zach and a lot of people as much as they enjoyed it, admitted like it really got to them. And while this episode has has those same powerful statements, it's more of a conversation about what what happened, what should have happened to prevent it, and what the atmosphere was like inside Mark's units and inside the military when it occurred, and the ripple effect that that one that one suicide can have that maybe we forget when we're talking about suicide we think about the one person but i talked a lot more in this interview than i have in my past so i am going to uh get right to this interview and my reflections will be short because a lot of what i have to say is said in the interview so uh mark sergeant mark wade united states marine corps talking to us about a friend of his that committed suicide and and his response to it yeah it uh it really all started back uh, I would say 2006 when I came back from my final tour in Iraq. Um, you know, I, I was non-deployable after X amount of years spent overseas in a row. Um, I was sent out to Bridgeport to the Mountain Warfare Training Center um, where I was slated to be an instructor and, you know, met a lot of guys out there. There were a lot of good dudes. But, you know, the, the thing out there is that there's not a whole lot going on uh, as far as stuff to do because you're really isolated. And when I say isolated, I mean you're you're isolated. There's no cell phone. Well, when I was there, there were no cell phones, you know, no radio stations, nothing of the of the sort. Um, so you really kind of rely heavily on, you know, hanging out in the barracks for those of the guys that live on base. And uh, there was a, you know, there's always the e club or the bar. Um, so pretty much everybody would go there, grab a couple of beers, and then head back to the barracks and hang out. And that's where I met Staff Sergeant Dane. Uh, you know. He lived two rooms down from me at the time. I was a sergeant, you know. There wasn't really uh, an officer or staff barrack or anything, so everybody just kind of, you know, sergeants and above lived on the top floor and so on and so forth. Um, but I met the guy who lived two doors down from me. Uh, you know, we just saw each other at work through different courses we were instructing. I would sit through his, he'd sit through mine. We'd give each other pointers. Uh, you know, we'd catch hockey on the weekends or, or football, whatever season it was. Uh, you know, became pretty close, you know, as close as, as most guys in the military are. Um, I knew uh, he had hurt his shoulder during one of the courses, and it kind of 
took him off a little bit. So he, uh, you know, started drinking real heavy and, and was getting into some, some dark, dark times. You know, it, it's, he, he had multiple combat deployments. So, you know, uh, pretty much everybody there that was the instructor cadre was non-deployable for a reason. Uh, whether it had been multiple deployments, whether it had been injuries, you know, so on and so forth. But when you get out there, your your main job really is to be that instructor, to, to teach that guy that's going to Afghanistan, Iraq, or, you know, whatever scenario you may be in, your main job is to make sure that they're going to be out there and be safe. Uh, and, you know, if you get pulled out of it, it, it really, it takes a toll on you. Like, it's it's really hard to deal with, you know, psychologically, I guess, because if you can't teach anything, then you're just kind of stuck doing whatever BS job they put you in. Yeah. You know, whether it be running, you know, errands for the sergeant major or standing gate guard or, you know, there's a job out there where you shovel horse stalls, for God's sake. You know, everybody's got their own thing out there. But, I, you know, after uh, Dane got hurt, it was, uh, you know, I, I saw a, a, a definite turn to the dark portion, I guess. You know, heavier drinking, angry outbursts. You could just tell that it wasn't going well. Um. You know, and being friends with them, you know, I'd sit down, we'd have a beer, I'd just kind of, you know, shoot the proverbial shit with him, I guess you could say, to make sure, you know, that he wasn't, you know, so far to a point where it wasn't going to turn out well. I remember the night of, or the night before, you know, I was the duty NCO, uh, you know, doing my tour of the barracks, they were up in the third deck lounge, everybody was just kind of cutting up, having a good time, you know, no big deal, nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, by the time I had gone back to do like my three or four o'clock tour, you know, walk around the barracks, you know, nobody's heard anything, nothing out of the ordinary, just keep going back. Um, at seven or at six, I guess, when we go to wake up the, uh, relieving duty just to make sure that, you know, you get your day off, uh, I knock on the door, didn't answer. You know, I figured out he probably just tied one on tight. I'll let him sleep an extra half hour. No big deal. Then, you know, I go back another half hour, you know, nothing, say, you know, half hour, half hour. And after, uh, I don't know, probably two or three hours of knocking on the door, you know, I figured it was time to go in. So, you know, I, I checked with the staff duty and they said, go ahead, just unlock the door, shake him, you know, make him shower. He still want to get anybody in trouble. So, you know, you let everybody do their thing. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he blew his head off with a 12-gauge shotgun. Oh, my God. Inside of his barracks room, you know, he had kids, everything. So, you know, when I open the door and all I see are just two feet sitting on the bed, I'm thinking, oh, man, he's passed out. Turn the corner and, you know, there he is with, you know, painted walls, to say the least. You know, it's not, it's never good to see that, but, like, that guy had some real demons that it's it's a shame that, you know, that was the way he felt that he had to get out of it, but... You know, you, you always sit there and think, you know, could I have done more? Could I have been a better friend? I mean, you know, it's it's never an easy thing to, you know, go to combat, especially in the Marine Corps, especially in the Marine Corps infantry unit, you know. It's it's not the easiest thing in the world, but you usually rely on your, you know, your friends, your brothers in arms, that you, know, you can sit there and talk to them. But it's such that warrior culture that you're brought up in, it's not really, you know, par for the course if you're really in that bad of help. You know, that you seek each other. You know, I mean, I've heard people make fun of each other for going to see the wizard, for God's sakes. You know, it's, yeah, it's never a good thing to see, but it's, it's definitely something that, 
you know, needs to be brought to light and was why I'm glad that you're actually doing this. I mean, how, what did this do to you? I mean, you found him. I mean, like that's yeah. most people never even have to be in the same room as a dead body, let alone, let alone being the first person to come across it, let alone even more it being a body that has a blown off head yeah. by a self-inflicted wound. I mean, that's, I can only imagine that as soon as you put all the pieces together, which I'm sure only took like a second and a half. Yeah. I mean, it had to have done something. Yeah, I mean, to be completely honest with you, like, the, the initial thing that I thought of was like, man, this sucks. Just, <laughs> you know, it, it sounds heartless, it sounds cold, but the first thing I think of is like, you know, this sucks. Just everything about it sucks. You know, and like, when, you know, when the NCIS and everybody came in, you know, down the road, like, you know, I tried cracking jokes to cover it up, but I mean, it's, it's not something that you forget very easily. You know, I, and I say this with a grain of salt, but luckily for me, you know, I, I went through my final tour in Iraq was in Haditha, which, you know, the, the whole Haditha massacre with 3-1, I was there for that. Um, you know, we had a couple guys kill themselves in, you know, the port of shitters down there. We were also training the Iraqi National Guard, who they were killing themselves. So it's, you never get used to seeing it, but the more you see it, sad to say, it almost gets a little easier. Yeah. But it's, it's not anything that's ever to be, you know, taken lightly to a point where like, well, he killed himself. Well, move on to the next one. There's so many questions I could ask here. Uh, I mean, shoot away, you know, I'm an open book for you. Yeah. yeah what was the unit's response? The unit's response was immediately, you know, counseling. Anybody that needs it, counseling's right out the rip. Um, you know, and I hate to say it, but then there were health and comfort inspections, you yeah. know, almost weekly. Field days became, you know, wall locker inspections. And it's it seemed like there was a lot of confusion right away. Um, and that had came, come on the heels of, one of the other instructors went to Afghanistan and was killed by a sniper. So, you know, the base was already mourning on that. And then, you know, you, you throw the suicide on top of it and it was, you know, it just turned out to be bad. Yeah. Um, but the, the main thing is, I mean, they, they did offer, you know, to, to send people down to Pendleton for counseling or, you know, you could go out into Reno, which was the closest major city to, you know, seek your own counseling and it would be paid for through TRICARE or however they did it. Um, but the, the first initial thing that they did was like health and comfort, everybody's wall lockers, gear lockers, trucks, vehicles, everything had to be open and inspected to make sure that there were no firearms floating around because it's, you know, it, the base itself is in the middle of the Sierra. So hunting and fishing are huge out there. So, you know, everybody has shotgun or, you know, it's Nevada or you were close enough to Nevada where, you know, open carry state. So you could walk around a pistol if you wanted to. You know, there's there's tons of different things, but, uh, I mean, they handled it pretty well. I mean, as well as could be, I guess. Let's, I mean, it's, that's good to hear, because trust me, I've I've asked that question to a few people that I've talked to, and that, their answer to that question isn't a good one. Yeah, one, the plus side is, is that there was only, I think, including, you know, all personnel, there was 150 permanent personnel on the base. So, okay. it, it was a pretty tight-knit, you know, very tight-knit group of people. Yeah. This question, I mean, there may not be an answer to this question, um, and this is definitely an easier question to ask than it is to answer. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, what do you think he needed? I mean, what do you, and even going down to like the broadest, most simplest ideas, like not to be a smart ass, but you know, some people say like, oh, all he needed was a hug. Um, I mean, what do you think this guy truly needed? What wasn't he getting? Um, I'll be honest with you. I, I think he needed some help from previous things that he had done slash seen. Um, you know, like he, like I said, he was, he was a, an O3, you know, O3 for his entire career. I think he had at least four or five pumps in. I mean, it wasn't easy stuff. Like he was a amp tracker. I'm pretty sure he said, you know, one deployment. So, you know, that he had some pretty deep seated issues from stuff that he had done in situations he had been put in. Um, but the problem, I, I think the final problem he ran into was, once he got hurt and couldn't actually complete his job, he was just kind of sitting around, you know, more or less being a paperwork. And it, it's very tough to go from, you know, creme de la creme, you know, top of the barrel kind of stuff to doing paperwork for somebody. And, you know, like I, I try to, you know, and there was a lot of people, I say I, but, you know, there was, like I said, it was such a tight knit group that everybody kind of looked out for everybody. But, you know, after his injury, he just kind of shunned everybody and wanted nothing to do with anybody. Right. So I think just somebody to, to actually really sit down and crack in and talk to him and, you know, risk that, I guess, judgment from, from your peers where, you know, you're taking the time, I guess, to almost be quote unquote soft, you know, go talk to people. Did you need any sort of counseling after that? Even better question, did they require you to do any counseling after that? I, I was required to go and talk to a suicide prevention counselor and a post-traumatic stress counselor um, who were both civilians out in town, out in the Reno area, uh, because of what I saw. Anything after that was strictly up to me if I wanted to, to continue the therapy. And, you know, it was offered to be paid for through the government, like it's not a dime coming out of my pocket. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I'll be honest with you, I didn't really seek much therapy after that just because it's the whole, you know, Marine Corps mentality where, uh, you know, I've, I've seen worse, I've done worse, just kind of, you know, drive on, I guess. I mean, despite that mentality, do you think you could have benefited from more counseling? Um, yes. I mean, to be completely honest with you, like, you know, it's, it's been, what, six years now, and it, it's, you know, it, it's not fresh on my mind, but, you know, there are still times where, like, I'll see subtle reminders of it or, you know, something like that, and it's, yeah, you know, it, it I could have definitely benefited from more, but at the time, you know, I, I think I was 23, 24, you, you couldn't have told me otherwise, you know. How did, how did, did I mean, what about his, what about his peers, um, his, his peers didn't really brush it off, but it was just kind of hushed. Like it wasn't brought up. It wasn't, you know, really a public thing. Like we had a safety stand down, safety brief thing. And then after that, it was just kind of, you know, mission at hand because we had units coming on. So everybody just kind of had to, had to go forward. Yeah, and that's um, I think that's that's sort of one of the more bitter parts about the the military, right? I yeah, mean, oh, yeah. Like, you don't even, um, you know, because one of the things that we sort of forget about maybe, um, or that we don't really notice with you know with with what's going on, 
um, within this epidemic is one death doesn't just affect one life. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and we should know this, and especially not one that people have such a hard time swallowing and wrapping their heads around. Because, you know, if you think about it, and this is something that I, I may have an opportunity to speak um, at the um, American Legion Auxiliary Conference in a couple weeks, um, mm-hmm. And this is something I'm going to sort of emphasize is you, know, you have the you have the the veteran right even the military member and they kill themselves right there's one there's there's a death and it's obviously one impacted life because it no longer exists yeah. and then you have like it's like a huge ripple effect right and, like right away you know um, immediate families affected right um, oh. mothers daughters you know siblings fa- you know sons fa- all that stuff. And not only are they affected by the loss of a family member, they're traumatized by the confusion of why. And then it's like on like the military, like on the business side of things, they don't even get any of that money. The SGLI money, none of that comes to them because suicides do not pay out. So now you have that mil, now you possibly have a military spouse possibly even gave up their career to be a part of this military family. Mm-hmm. who now has to find a way to reestablish a career to provide for their kids with no real assistance from the government after what happened. And the government has the reasons for not doing it, but it's still a horrible situation for them to be in. Okay. And, th- and that's just the first ripple effect, right? I mean, all of what I just said is just the pff, right away. That's the first thing that happens. And then you have friends, family, peers that knew the guy or knew the person that just shot themselves or just killed themselves. Um, but maybe, you know, like knew him well enough for it to hurt, but not well enough, um, really to be as traumatized, but that still sucks, right? You have to sit around and think about the fact like, man, I knew that guy. I talked to him. Like, was there anything I could have said to change that? And, and then you have like the third ripple effect where you have like the community that hears about it. Like, you know, the other unit members, friends of the family stuff like that and there's sort of a shock because you don't know is there anything i can do now to help this family and then there's even and then what's funny is the 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 outer ripple is almost the most powerful because now it starts hitting the internet right now um memes are created blog posts are created it's being announced on the local news the local paper and now you have everybody sitting back and going damn how do we stop this the thing that sucks a lot about this one and you know this will almost sound like i feel bad saying it um but with the angle that he shot himself put a hole in the adjacent room next to him you know barracks so luckily nobody was in that room but in a you know a base that's already you know busting at the seams and you take away two more barracks rooms for you know God knows how long, you know, then you've got people living with other people, which created tension. You know, then a lot of the junior Marines who were underneath, you know, blood seeped through the floor. So then there was the room underneath of it. Oh, God. Um, so then, you know, like I, I know for a fact that there was, I'm not going to mention any names here, but there was a sergeant who got busted down to Lance Corporal and then eventually kicked out for, uh, 
more or less beating the shit out of one of the junior Marines who was making fun of, oh, you know, I had to move out of my room because some asshole shot himself. You know, that's... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you know, it doesn't work out well. Then the other problem is, is that since we were so remote, we didn't really get great TV service. So, you know, the chow holes always got CNN. Well, for, you know, three or four days after this, you know, this was all over CNN. Right. Fox News, and it was showing pictures of the Dane. We had reporters coming up to, you know, the base asking us questions like they... We literally had a PAO fly up from Pendleton and brief the entire base on do not talk to the media, no matter how tempting it is. Don't go out there and make an asshole out of yourself. Don't go out there and make an asshole out of Dane. You know, what it, what it really sucks is, you know, and, and obviously that's the right advice. Yeah. Right. But, you oh, know, yeah. what better time to get people's attention than in the moment? You know, what sucks is after the whole thing dies down, then we have people who are standing up and like, oh, we have to stop this. And like people like, yeah, yeah, I mean, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if it, you know, it's, it's when you're in the moment that you can, you know, that's, that's all revolutions are started. Okay. Um, and it's, yeah, it sucks that the military tries to stifle its members right at the time, um, that their voice could be the most powerful. I mean, how do you feel about the, the, you know, the, how do you feel about the military suicide prevention program, like the briefings and stuff like that? Do you think it's effective at all? No, I'll be, I mean, like partially joking, but I think it actually drives more people to want to commit suicide sitting through those long, boring-ass briefs. Like, I can't tell you how many times, because I, I started out in Okinawa, went to Lejeune, and then went out to Bridgeport afterwards. So, like, every time you go somewhere, there's a new brief that you got to sit through. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's paying attention to them. I mean, especially nowadays when, you know, cell phones and smartphones are so, you know, popular, especially amongst the junior guys, that you can sit in there and you, you put 150 Marines in a room with, you know, one overweight civilian who's not, you know, nobody's going to pay attention to them. They're, you know, granted, they're trying to get their message across and you can't hate them for it. But I think that the approach that they're making is the wrong way of doing it. Yeah, and I, I honestly think the I think the biggest problem they have, um, and I guess this really isn't even to the fault of the military because this is how we do things. But like we're the military is so set on finding the one stop solution or the one stop training to fix everything, right? I mean, you go to everybody goes to one boot camp, you know, everybody goes to that same program. You go to one MOS school, and that's where everybody who goes to your school, and then you you start getting to the smaller problems, and it's like, if there's a problem in, like, the shop, everybody takes one simple hip class, and everybody should get it after that. So the the military tries to think, well, there's got to be one suicide briefing that we can blast out to the entire organization and have every unit sit through and somehow let it be effective. And that's just, it's not the case. You have to think about what unit you're talking about. You have to, you have to think about who you're talking to, who's your demographic. I used to, you know, think about this. Let's say you're talking to, um, you know, let's say you're talking to, I don't want to generalize here, but let's say you're talking Mm -hmm. to an admin office and most of the, most of the Marines in there are female. And, you know, maybe there's a ch- and there's a good chance, maybe that unit hasn't deployed yet. So to give, showing them a video about a guy, about a male who comes home from Iraq and is suffering from PTSD, as much as that sucks, that's not going to resonate with them. No, no. You know, show it, talking to them about like, and having someone go up there 
you know, especially someone from their ranks and talk about how they were sexually assaulted and they were contemplating suicide. Talk, you know, have them talk about relationship issues and what it can do for depression. And, and I don't want to be like sexist in those things, but I mean, those are just like ex- obviously examples of how you can strongly speak to your audience. Oh, yeah. And I think that's how you get the, an audience of service members to sort of pay attention and resonate with the material and understand like, Oh, that's like me. That's actually something that I'm going through. And, you know, and you can't obviously, and even if you can't, you know, tailor it specifically, I mean, it has to be difference. And it can't just be like this mundane, every month, sit through it and wonder why veterans are still killing themselves. Yeah. Well, and I, I think you hit the nail right on the head. I, I, you know, obviously I have nothing to do with what they do now, but. I think, you know, your best bet is to find, you know, that, that small unit leadership, you know, your, your fire team leaders, your squad leaders. Yeah. You, know, you don't want to go to, if you speak to the masses, you're not going to get everybody's attention. But if, you know, you, you bump it down from 50 to, you know, 11, then you can actually engage people and, instead of just literally speaking to a room of 50 dudes who would rather just be sitting, you know, at their shop, at their office, maintenance weapons, you know, doing whatever they're doing. And sitting in, you know, a, a lounge somewhere that's just hot and balmy and ridiculous and listening. Um, you know, if, if you could get it down to, you know, that right around that double digit, that 10, 11 people per sitting, then, you know, I think you'd be more effective. But then you run into the cost of sending everybody to training and making sure that the actual point you're trying to get across is getting across and make sure with the right demographic and all. Absolutely. I mean, I, that's... You know, I, I think that's. I'm actually typing it right now into a Facebook post that uh, that small, you know, suicide prevention discussion should be conducted at the small unit level. Oh, yeah. um, you know, let squad leaders talk to their guys um, about the realities of PTSD and suicidal behavior, and sort of letting them know that, like, hey, that happens. You know, like the, you know, like we all face it. You know, it's something. Oh, yeah. You know, I was talking to one guy about how. You know, everybody who deploys comes back with some level of PTSD, for lack of a better term, right? Oh, yeah. um, in the sense that, like, if once you leave, you're put into a completely new, you know, daily life routine, mm-hmm. environments, the pe- how you interact with people's different. You don't touch people. Like, you're just, your lives are different, you know, completely. Oh, yeah. Whether you sat on a mew for eight months or you were in a sandbox or maybe you were, you know, maybe you were, fast team and all you you just had an embassy for the whole time you're going to come back you know if you left with let's say zero ptsd you're going to come back with at least one you know like your level ptsd is going to be something above zero and it's going to be different for you you're going to have to address it and having someone tell you hey that happens here's some easy ways to address it here's some effective ways to address it and you can always talk you know if you don't want to if you don't want to go talk to staff sergeant if you don't want to go talk to the oic if you don't want to talk to the chaplain no one wants to talk to the chaplain if you don't want to go talk to these people i'm right here and we can have this discussion no one has to know it won't go into your fit rep it won't going to your pros and cons it gets a conversation we can have between you and i and we can figure out how to get you the help that you need without it affecting your career because i think that's one of the things that that military members suffer from the most is fearing like i i want to get promoted like i don't want to be held back because people think i'm mentally ill and on the other side 
The military needs to start realizing that having PTSD and having suicidal behavior does not mean you're not mission ready. It does not mean that you can't carry out a mission because you know what? After day one of sitting in the, in the sandbox, people had with PTSD kept on carrying out missions, saving people's lives and getting things done the way that Marines and soldiers know how. So when they come back and say, Hey, I have a problem. I have these issues. I need, I'm thinking about suicide. I need someone to help me out. That doesn't mean that he, you, you don't need to dismiss them out. You don't need to, there's no discharge necessary. Get them the help that they want. Make, let them help them, help them realize that it's okay. And then turn around and put them back on a deployment because they're going to be just as effective then as they were before you knew. Oh, yeah. Well, and I, you know, I think the, the biggest problem or biggest challenge they're going to run into with that is that PTSD is looked at like a handicap, almost like a retardation, you know, where it, you know, if you walk into any shit, I won't even say infantry, you walk into any Marine Corps platoon of any kind and you say, yep, I've got PTSD. The first thing that somebody's going to look at you, they're going to look at you and say, wow, what a, like, you're just a full blown, didn't you learn anything? Aren't you tough? Aren't you the Marine Corps way? Yeah. When, you know, people, and that's the thing is that, you know, peer pressure, it's going to keep people from seeking the help they need. And that's where you start running into severe problems where, you know, prolonged PTSD, suicidal attempts, suicidal thoughts even. Just, you know, it's tough to to get past that hurdle because it's, like I said before, it's just such that warrior ethos where, you know, it's, it's almost looked as a weakness or a handicap or a retardation of sorts. You know, I, I've been talking to a lot of, you know, I mean, I, I have, I've lost count so far. Um, I'm at like 15, maybe, maybe, tw- I, I know I'm at least... I'm probably about 15 conversations. It's hard to tell because I'm talking about this constantly, but I can't remember which ones I'm actually like getting on, like recorded, like interview wise. The two things that seem to be the most consistent on success of derailing suicidal behavior: empathy. Yeah. Um, having someone just sort of empathize with them and letting them know, like, hey, like that's something that we're all going through, and here's what I'm doing about it. Here's something you know, maybe you want to consider doing the same thing. Yeah. And two repurposing right oh. you know like being able and it sounds like that's really what this guy needed yeah and, and that was the big problem is that like uh you know he heard himself teaching a ropes course which I, I don't know if you ever made it out to bridgeport or anybody that's listening whatever you know know what i'm talking about yeah um, but you know obviously with ropes course you're going to need a lot of upper body because it's ropes and you know he tore his rotator cuff and that just kind of takes his entire purpose of being on that base away and if you're, you know, if you're not actively engaged with, you know, the students or, or, or another cadre doing something, then it's almost like you're looked down upon. You know, it's everybody always jokes about, you know, grunts versus pogues, pogues versus grunts. But in this base, if you weren't actively engaged, you might as well have just been some random, you know, piece of shit rolling around. That's the <laughs> wrong way to do that. Yeah, and, and but see, that's the problem everywhere. Is I mean, and you, I'm sure you know just as well as I do that. You, there, there's always that one guy who didn't want to be, who it was really, I guess you could say, the nonconformist in each platoon, and he was really outed as not worthy, not, you know, worthy of holding the title or being, you know, your, your brethren in arms kind of thing. I know everybody comes into these interviews sort of with something in mind that they wanted to hopefully get across or, mm-hmm. you know, an idea that, um, you know, they, they wanted to, or they, you know, figured they were going to talk about. Is there anything else that you want to add as far, you know, whether it's about the story, your veteran suicide in general, or, you know, something in, I don't know if there's a case where you know someone that was considering it and they stopped and you know sort of what intervened. Like, is there anything else that you want to uh, speak on the topic? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I've got 
two final things, if you don't mind. Yeah, go uh, ahead. I do a lot of work, you know, being in Maryland uh, when Walter Reed was still around. I do a lot of work with, you know, the American Legion VFW around here, um, dealing with a lot of guys coming back, especially amputees, uh, stuff like that, where whether you want to believe it or not, you know, if you have any kind of ill thought, you're not the first person to have it. And people will gladly talk to you about it. And it's so much easier just to sit down and talk to somebody about it than, you know, make it a legitimate issue. Because the longer you try to hide it, the worse it's going to get. Um, so, you know, I'd really like to get that across. Just, you know, really sit down and talk to somebody about it. Whether they know or they don't know, it's, it's good just to get it out there. Um, and what I've found worked really well for me after, you know, everything I've seen done and all that is that I've tried to turn it into all my negative experience into a positive, constructive role where um, I do a lot of work with, you know, this is probably off topic, but with a local hospice area around here where I run, you know, a teen program that's a bereavement program for, you know, they lost brothers, sisters, parents, you know, what have you, friends. Um, and I found that, you know, I can use a lot of my experiences, dial them back a little bit so, you know, teenagers don't have to hear the entire story but they know that they have somebody that, you know, they can look up to and talk to that is a normal functioning adult with, you know, a normal job, normal life that has the same problems that they have had or the same experiences. And, you know, life doesn't have to stop just because some traumatic experience has come across your path. That's what I'm getting at. I think this conversation gives you a great look into what a conversation between two Marines would sound like regarding this topic. And, how easily we can have this conversation. Uh, you know, it, it may be a little more, as I mentioned in the pre-interview monologue, it could be, it might be a little bit more blunt and straightforward and a little bit more casual than maybe we're used to. And, uh, but I think that it's, you know, this is normal. I mean, we can have these sort of conversations, um, which is, you know, what the project is really aiming at. I think Mark did a great job at, you know, explain to us exactly, you know, what he experienced and what he went through. And he was very honest. And um, while he didn't receive any um, extended therapy or counseling based on, you know, what he witnessed that, you know, looking back on it, he understands that maybe that could have been beneficial. Mentioned in the interview, um, you know, my, my discussion with another Marine about when you leave for deployment, you come back with just some sort of emotional difference. And, you know, we call it PTSD just for just how we understand these things. But, um, you know, we're, we're obviously not comparing it directly to PTSD, but, um, you know, to, to best explain what we're talking about, it's the easiest thing to relate to, but we're really just talking about an emotional and mental difference you receive when you deploy and when, you know, and the difference then when you come back, uh, Marine veteran, Ron Garner had this conversation with me. This is what he had to say. So I deployed to Afghanistan in 2007, 2008. Um, and I wasn't in a, I wasn't, I mean, I was in a war zone, right? And I, you know, I, I was outside the wire a fair bit. And I, you know, I, I experienced, I guess, some minimal amount of danger. But it wasn't like I was a guy in a frontline combat unit fighting every day. And I was in, in any real sustained danger, right? Um, uh, really, on a day-to-day -day basis, my job in Afghanistan was pretty cush. I mean, I, I got to stay, you know, inside the wire on Bagram Air Base. They had a, 
they had a, a Burger King and a, and, and a, a Dairy Queen and a PX and just about anything you could think of that you would expect to see on a, a base in the United States. They had aboard Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. So, so that was, you know, you cannot say that my experience in Afghanistan was one of the harder experiences. <laughs> but, you know, this and this is this just this just highlights to me how to me how pervasive the whole thing with PTSD is and the how pervasive this difficulty adjusting back to uh normal american civilization is when you come back from a deployment like that in that i experienced PTSD on a much smaller scale i am sure than 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 guys who are regularly in combat do but i think everybody does to some degree and you can't help experiencing it because you're isolated, right? You're you're in you're in a combat zone, and you're with other people constantly. Sure, as a matter of fact, you're you're around other people for a greater period of time every day, more than you are probably when you're at home. But you're isolated in that you never come into physical contact with other people, right? You're isolated in that the normal chain of human interaction gets entirely shifted when you're when you're in a combat zone. Everything is is stripped down to the minimum as far as as far as interaction with with other people, right? You don't have all of the social niceties that you have when you're when you're here in in the states, right? You don't you're not worried all the time about how other people feel about what you're saying and what you're doing and and how your your what you're saying or doing is going to affect them. You just do it. I think it's a great point that he makes there about just the environment's different and you come back and you know, you're you're used to uh the environment you were just in even though even even though you've lived in society for 18 plus years you know that's seven plus months in iraq or afghanistan or somewhere in combat um can definitely you know make you just experience life a little bit differently the first and second the first week i talked about doing google hangouts the second week i didn't mention it because i was very busy at a uh, doing, moderating a panel down in Nashville. Um, the, a link to that video is up at the website. If you're, if you're interested, we, I talked to Noah Courier of Oscar Mike, Ralph Randolph from the devil's ride and Zachary Bell from courage beyond. We had a very, very good panel and conversation regarding, you know, suicide within the veteran space. And it was very, very powerful, very honest. And I think it leads to a lot of great ideas that, you know, we need to be having as a community, uh, a link and possibly even just that video will be up um, on our website. But the Hangouts, I definitely want to do. I'm doing a Hangout this week. Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time is when I'm going to do an, the first official Google Hangout. Couldn't get one done the first week due to scheduling difference. Didn't plan to do one last week, but I'm definitely doing one this week. Wednesday the 25th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you go to the website and go to Hangouts, you'll see for more information on how you can register to attend uh, and, and join in me in the conversation. We can have this. We can discuss. You, you can ask any questions you want. Give me some feedback, whatever it may be. But you know, we can start having this discussion uh, within our community. Of course, I have to recognize and acknowledge my awesome Kickstarter backers, the ones who are able to help. You know, let me get this project off the ground. This week, I thank Casey Suvumaki and Mark Bayer for their contribution and their support. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks again to Mark Wade for sharing his story. I hope you got something out of it. Please join me at the Hangout. It's going to be good. And please share this with anybody you feel can benefit from this conversation. We hope you've taken something from this episode. If you'd like to learn more, please connect with us on our website, onetomanyproject.com. That's O-N-E, the number two, manyproject.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, iTunes, and Stitcher, all linked from our site. Lastly, if you'd like to support the project by becoming a sponsor, contact Tim at timlawson21 at gmail.com or going to onetomanyproject.com slash sponsorship. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.